a chief information security officer is an executive that focuses on the security strategy. They are not a technical position. They are a strategic position. They focus on growing the business. They understand financials. They understand revenue. They understand profit margins. And their focus is how to integrate security to be a business enabler. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Eric Cole, founder of Secure Anchor Consulting, about why he believes the CISO is not and should not be seen as a technical role. Why is it important for the CISO to separate themselves from day-to-day security operations? What are some of the common misconceptions about the role and its responsibilities? And what are the four key questions every CISO should ask their board? Okay, Eric, for those that don't know you, the few, would you do us the honor of introducing yourself? Thanks, Steve, for having me on the show. I've been working in cybersecurity for 30 years, and I'm on a mission to make cyberspace a safe place to live, work, and raise a family. To me, everybody is moving to a virtual digital world, yet they were never taught how to be safe. So I'm really on that mission to help people understand the dangers that are out there. Real quick on my background, I started at the CIA for eight years where I was a professional hacker and learned how to break into just about any system on the planet and a few that weren't on the planet. And I'll tell you, after doing that for eight years, I got bored out of my mind because you can always get into a system. There's always vulnerabilities. Offense is easy, defense is hard. So I then switched and worked on the defensive side of the house. But I also at that time discovered that I have this built-in entrepreneurial DNA in my body. So I built and sold multiple companies. So I started a company called TSGI, the SciTex Group Inc., where we did a lot of government work. And we sold that to Lockheed Martin. And then Bob Stevens, the CEO at the time, kept me on as his uh, chief cybersecurity scientist. So I pretty much had access to the jets, traveled around the world whenever there was a problem or issue with cybersecurity. So really sort of super high-end incident response awareness. Then I was brought in uh, by Dave DeWalt to McAfee to help redesign their entire product line and help determine the value of their intellectual property. So that's around the time 2009-10, will you notice McAfee did a lot of changes in their firewalls, products, and integration. And then we ended up selling that to Intel. And then from there, I was working for SANS, where I developed uh, several of their top 10 courses. The most notable one is uh, Security Essentials, number one course for 14 years. And I know a lot of people love using the terms bestseller and number one, but I have the numbers and the data to back it up. It actually is the, the number one course out there. I've toured uh, a ton of people have written several books. I have my eighth book, Cyber Crisis, coming out in May. And now I run my own company, Secure Anchor, where I'm really focused on security awareness, security leadership, and really training up real chief information security officers, because I'm sure we're going to get into it. But to me, a lot of organizations really misunderstand that role. Let's go right into that. And and, uh, I guess before, though, uh, thank you for that intro. Very impressive. What don't most organizations 
understand what do they miss about the CISO role? How, what's their mis- misconception and what's the effect that that has on industry? To me, the biggest misconception that organizations and both individuals have, the CISO role is not a technical role. It's not a technical career track. Probably one of the best examples of that is we're, we're rolling out our CISO certification right now, and we've done some ads, and I get people all the time going, Eric, you can't teach somebody to be a CISO. The only way to be a CISO is be a security engineer for 12 years and then become promoted to CISO. And I'm like, ah, you know, like th- that's the problem. Right? You have two different career tracks. You have a world class security engineer. They're technical, they're tactical, they put out the fires. A chief information security officer is an executive that focuses on the security strategy. They are not a technical position, they are a strategic position. They focus on growing the business, they understand financials, they understand revenue, they understand profit margins. And their focus is how to integrate security to be a business enabler. And to me, that's the big problem out there is if you're a technical mindset, don't get me wrong, you could be a world-class security engineer and make a ton of money, but you are not and you should not be a CISO. What would you say to the person who might have been an engineer or an intrusion analyst or an architect that says, you know, Eric, that, this is my goal. This is really what I want to be. I want to evolve into this strategic person, this, this business advisor. What, what's your response if I were asking you that right now? My first would be, are you sure? Right? Because, and the second response, if you said yes, I'd be like, awesome, because that's, you need to have a security background, but you need to make that switch. So here's the test that I always give folks. You're sitting at your desk and all of a sudden you get a text message that there has been a major data breach at your organization, and one of your critical servers is having information leak out of the system very, very quickly. What do you do? Now, if your response is you're going to immediately run into the data center or with the epidemic, you're going to immediately log into the data center, you're going to start analyzing the system, analyzing the server, and figure out what's going on and figure out the problem, congratulations. You are a world-class security engineer you would make a terrible CISO because you would isolate your team, you would focus on technical, and you're not communicating with the executives. Now, if your answer to that question was, Eric, I would immediately mobilize my team, I would task them, I would make sure that all the critical areas were being covered and investigated, and I would ask for an update in 45 minutes. I would then hang up the phone and call the executives. I would make them aware of what's happening. I would tell them the high-level strategy, and I would say we'd give you an update in 60 minutes congratulations, you're a world-class CISO. But if somebody wants to do that, you have to switch from technical firewalls to balance sheet financials, right? You are an executive and you need to think and act like an executive. I would absolutely agree with that. I see in my travels, individuals who have that CISO title that try very hard to hold on to the tech. And I'm curious your take on this, but an old rule I had is that if you were a manager or director in in one of my teams, that you had to give up console access. Do you think that that is done enough or do you see that same problem? And and why do you think we're holding on to that, to saying, I got to maintain access to the firewall or to to some sort of analytic device while trying to be a management 
I think what it comes down to is you have a lot of people that are focused more on a title than really focusing their purpose and what they love to do. To me, if you're a CISO and you don't want to give up your root password or your console access or any of that stuff, then you're in the wrong position yet. Why are you doing something that you don't enjoy? Because what I tell folks all the time is you can make a ton of money as a world-class security engineer. No doubt. You can make a ton of money as a world-class CISO. I know some cases where security engineers make a lot more than CISOs and vice versa. It's not about money. And I also know places where the world-class security engineer is as respected as the CISO. So it's not about prestige. It's not about money. It's about doing what you really love. But for some reason, people have this mindset that unless they get the CISO title, they haven't really achieved that level of cybersecurity professional that they need to. And it's just, it's just a flawed model that we have out there. There are two different career tracks and it really comes down to what you love. So just back to your question, to me, it shouldn't be that you're required or forced to give up your root and your console access. It should be that you voluntarily do it because you don't want to do that anymore. I right. don't want to go in and configure firewalls anymore. That, that's just not what I enjoy doing. I have folks my age that love doing that. So it's really figure out what you love to do and follow it. Don't be sort of running along for some silly title that's going to make you miserable and unhappy. I completely agree. Idea around that as to why we have that is I believe that there's some prestige in a title and in having an office or and I think also some people believe they're going to get more credit for something if they have a fancier title. I think we struggle as an industry with feeling like we're appreciated and getting credit. And that, to me, I think fuels some of this, some of its ego. But I, I also think that in order to make that change, you have to be ready to, to divorce yourself of the things that made you good today. If you want to make that switch, you're going to have to give all that up. What do you think about the idea, and, and feel free if you, to disagree, in fact, it might be more fun if you do, on the idea of credit and uh, people wanting praise and thinking, if I move up, then I'll be happy. Like, is that, Do you think that's a trigger for this, or am I off base? I think it's a trigger, but, but to me, I'm laughing because it's completely the opposite. If you're a world-class security engineer, you get all the credit. When, when things go right, you get the credit, everyone gives you the awards and everything else. But if you become a CISO, to me, the number one piece of advice I'll give you is when things go right, you praise your team. And when things go wrong, you look in the mirror. Mm. When, when, when you look at really good chief, whether it's a chief information security officer, a chief operating officer, a chief executive officer, the really good ones, the ones they write the books about are always the ones that when things go wrong, they take all the blame. And when things go right, they always give everyone else the credit. So it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing because, yes, I think some people are doing it so they could say CISO, so they could say they're in charge, so they could do all this other stuff. But the question I come down to is, are you really going to enjoy that job? And the problem we have today is most CISOs, because they're technical and they can't speak the language and the executive team doesn't respect or understand them, that's why you have a situation where many CISOs are getting fired every year and a half to two years because they're just not in the right job and the right position. The good news is there's such a need for CISOs. You'll always get work, but you're just going to be switching jobs every one to two years. <laughs> yeah, no, it's too bad we see so much of that, but that is 
absolutely, I believe, the cause where uh, they don't fit in. They're, they, don't, they don't fit in because they don't speak the language. They don't understand protocol. They're, they're uncomfortable in the big room, in the ELT, SLT, board meeting, whatever that may be. Um, I want to stay on that topic. What if somebody comes to, you know, they reach out to your company, they reach out to you and they say, look, I'm a board advisor, I'm a ELT member, I'm the COO, whatever. Eric, how am I sure that I have the right CISO? What advice would you have to the listener that might not be a CISO, but might be somebody who's helping an organization get on the right foot as it relates to security? How do they know if they've got the right CISO or not? To me, it's real easy. You ask one question. So you sit down with your current CISO and you ask them a single question. What business are we in? How does our organization make money? And if that CISO pauses, hesitates, or goes technical, you have the wrong person. Well, one of the things I always train my CISOs up and I train executives is if I go in and ask you, what is your name? Where do you live? What is your phone number? What business are we in? How do we make money? How do we differentiate from the competition? It should be seamless. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, j- just like it's committed to memory, your name and where you live, that type of information also needs to be committed to memory. You are a business-focused position. And, and just a quick example, uh, and, and it's, I say it's funny, but it's really sad, is three months ago, I was up in New York, and I know a lot of the executives there. So it's a fairly large bank. And I'm sitting there with the CEO, the COO, and the CFO. And we're just talking. We're talking business and just some of the high-level strategy they're working on. We're grabbing coffee. We're all just sort of very informal, but having business meetings and talking. We all go to lunch together, have a great time. And then I kid you not, the COO looks down at his watch and he goes, oh, crap, it's 1.30. And the CEO and the CFO, they're all like, oh, man. And I'm like, what's going on? (laughs) And they're like, this is our weekly meeting with the CISO. And so I'm watching this dynamic and the CISO comes in and all excited. Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, I just got out of the data center and I'll tell you, we were able to reduce the false positives. So we now have better visibility. And I think we caught some command control channels and some data exfiltration. And they're just going on. You look at the CISO, so excited, positive energy. You look at the other three executives and they're just, you might as well be speaking a different language. They're looking at their cell phones. And I mean, totally, totally ineffective. And then here's the scariest part. The meeting ends, the CISO leaves. And I go up to the CISO. I'm like, so how'd you think that meeting went? Eric, I nailed it. I just nailed it. I owned it, man. It was great. And I'm like, can I be completely honest with you? You get an F. And the only reason I'm giving you an F is because I feel bad for you. You should get a zero. I said, you failed miserably. I said, let me fill you in on what happened before and after. And, and I felt bad because I, I didn't mean to sort of get this person upset, but they did. And I was just like, the best thing you could do, and they actually took my advice, is go in next week and say, listen, I appreciate you entrusting me with the CISO, but I really enjoy being the world-class security engineer. So can I be your chief security engineer and help you find a new CISO? And, and I will tell you, they, they went in Everybody was happy. It was like group hug around the room because the executives knew it was a bad fit, but they didn't want to fire the person. The person knew it was a bad fit, but didn't want to admit it. And if you're in that situation, that's the best thing you can do. Ask for the title that you want and then tell them you're going to bring in a new CISO. But the problem is a CISO needs to be just like the COO, CFO, CEO. You got to be comfortable 
in business decision-making conversations. So that I think that story is played out probably too often. <laughs> and I love the, the storytelling, though, where you have someone going in and they're excited. They leave. They think they aced it. And there's this, I don't mean to sound mean, but it, it, there's this ignorance around all of it. And I think that shame on the CISO, but also shame on the other executives for maybe saying, hey, you're missing the mark. You know, you're enthusiastic about things that we're not. What advice would you have to somebody who was maybe farther along, maybe, maybe not in the same bad position, but they need to get better? So back to your question of how do we make money? What business are we in? What if you don't know? I mean, how do you get better at that? I mean, it's a simple question, but maybe, you know, tough, tough to get into. If, if you're coming in and you're a new hire, how do you get there, Eric? To me, the best way to get there is ask for help and ask for assistance. Most people within an organization are nice and kind. So, so what I'll do is I'll say, listen, go in and ask the CFO if you can sit down with them for an hour and just go over the high-level balance sheets and just tell them, listen, as the chief information security officer, I need to know how we're making money because you're going to ask me at some point what the security budget should be. And if I don't understand the finances, how am I going to answer that? Is a million dollars an appropriate security budget? Well, if the company is only making 600000 they'll laugh you out of the room. It's way too high. On the other hand, when I worked at Lockheed Martin, where they're a multi-billion dollar company, if I asked Bob Stevens for a million dollars, he would have laughed me out of the room and fired me because it was a much, much higher multiplier. So as soon as you explain your reason of in order for me to put together an effective budget, I need to understand that information that they're more than likely going to meet with you. Same thing with the COO. Say, listen, I need to understand the business of this organization so I can support it because to me, security is a business enabler. Can you help me understand the business better? And here's the irony. When a new COO or CFO comes in, they do the same thing. They right. have an onboarding. They spend time with them. For some reason, the, the CISO isn't treated the same way. And it's one of those where you sort of said shame on both. Honestly, a lot of the problems with CISOs, and I tell executives this, shame on the executives because they know that there's a problem. They know what they want, but they don't ever tell the CISO. The CISO doesn't know any better. If you're a security engineer, you don't know what you're supposed to be. So you think you're doing a good job and they're not telling you. So shame on them for not calling you out and fixing that problem. But I'll tell you right now, they're not. So you need to take the initiative. You need to ask the questions. When I was a CISO at a telecom, one of the conditions for taking the job was that the CEO has to, for the next three months, be willing to meet with me for 30 minutes a week. And I said, I won't take the job if you don't agree to that. And they're like, Eric, that's the strangest request. Not even COOs <laughs> say that. Why would you ask that? I said, because I need that to be successful. If right. I don't have access to the CEO and he or she is not willing to give me the time, that tells me two things. One, it tells me they're not taking the role seriously. And two, I'm not going to be successful. So it's sometimes being a little more creative and asking for what you want. And the interesting thing about it, and it wasn't my intention, you'll impress the heck out of them in the process. Phenomenal advice. We've spent a lot of time on the show talking about what ends up being, we've kind of marched toward how to interview better. So I think a lot of CISOs fail at the interview for not asking, not asking the right questions, 
um, not being direct enough in terms of what they need or what they think they need going in. And that's exactly the kind of thing that I think more people should consider going in. How serious do you take this position? Because if you're never going to give me the time and the only person I get to speak with is maybe the CIO, maybe it's not for you. That's a fantastic item. I hope anyone listening uh, jots that down and and has some uh, version of that uh, in their next interview, because that's some of the best advice I think we've received. So thanks for that, for sure. I think related to that, Eric, if you would, in your sort of advisory uh, work that you do or that your company does, what are the most common questions you get asked of you when maybe interacting with the board? So you're not the CISO, but you're like the advisor too, or the advisor to the board, just in general. What do they have you come in to um, disambiguate, right? To have, to sort of make more clear that they're not getting from their security leadership? To me, it's real easy. They, they want to understand what could negatively happen to the organization, what would be the impact, and what they need to know about. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one of my, uh, my secrets. I normally charge people a lot for this, but I'll, I'll give it away for free. The, the secret to briefing a board is one piece of paper with four things on it. And to me, this is where another thing where I can tell if you're going to be a successful CISO is I, I was brought in once where the CISO was briefing the board and they have 20-minute presentation to the board and they have 55 slides. Oh. And I look at them and I say, listen, are you on drugs or are you drunk? Because right. it has to be one of those two. You, 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 you can't be seriously. And these slides were not big picture animal slides. I mean, they were detailed slides. And I'm like, first of all, they don't care about anything on these slides. And second, you're never going to get through 50 slides. Here's the four things and the only four things that a board cares about. What is the risk? What could happen? What is the likelihood that that could happen? What is the cost if it occurs? And what is the cost to fix it? Those are the four things they care about. It's all money and business related. They want to understand that there's a potential that the organization has a 75% chance of losing $10 million, and that could be remediated or reduced for a million dollars. And they want to understand whether that trade-off is worth it or not. That's all they care about. So unless you're talking about the high-level risks, you're giving percents and dollars, you're not communicating in a way that they care or will understand they don't care about attack vectors. They don't care about number of records stolen. They don't care about data exfiltration. They just want to know what would the cost be to the business? What is the cost to fix it? And what is the likelihood that this could happen? They want numbers and really good CISOs provide the numbers. Well, I was going into that here and you've kind of just covered it, but I was going to ask you, what's your least favorite thing that you see CISOs try to report on, right? If you think of like a metrics deck or uh, things that they think are very important that they want to sort of shovel upwards that are terrible. You kind of gave an answer there at a board level, but just in general, maybe when you go in and look at a program and you see somebody who has their, hey, Eric, check out, look at, look at my metrics deck. Isn't this great? Look at the thing that I send to everyone every month. And you look at that and say, yuck, what's the number one yuck on Eric's list? It's focused on technology. Number one thing I see is they're going to go in and there's going to be a slide on prevention. And then they're going to give me metrics for firewalls, IPSs, IDSs, detection. They're going to then do a detection slide. They're then going to do a correlation slide. 
that they're essentially going to walk through the technology that's in place and how that technology is working. Executives and boards, that's why they have a technical team. They don't care about that. They care about, okay, what are we missing that we don't know about? What could happen to the organization that could cause significant damage or exposure? And what do we need to do to fix that? That they want to understand high levels. So you have, for, first of all, if you have a deck, I'll be nice. I do one page, but I'll, I'll give you a couple. If you have a deck over five slides, that irks me. If you have a deck over 25 slides, I'm going to smack you. If you have a deck over 50 slides, I'm going to get you drug tested. So, I mean, it's just, it's craziness. And then I'm going to flip through it. If I'm not seeing dollar signs and percents, and I'm seeing false positive, false negatives, firewalls, tuning, correlation, I'm seeing technical security terms. Once again, get me a lighter and I'm going to start burning that deck pretty quickly. You got to recognize executives and business folks are about risk management and not security risk management, risk management of what could happen, what is the cost, and what is the likelihood. What about in a state where maybe we're not dealing with the board or the ELT and we're just talking about general operational metrics and measures of a team? What do you think is the most incorrectly understood concept in information security? What do we get wrong most? Think of the, the, the security director, the person in charge of the SOC. What needs cleaned up the most there out of all of what you've seen? What could we do better? What's wrong in the way that we sort of represent ourselves in a, in a metric or a measure? Any thoughts there? Yeah, but probably the biggest one is not really understanding or recognizing the importance of risk acceptance or risk management. There are going to be cases where the organization might decide to accept a risk that is higher than what you would like. And the point is, as long as you presented all of the data, then you have to be okay with that decision. To, to me, I still think a lot of people are in this mindset that we need to be as close to 100% security, spend every last penny on security. And to me, that's not the case What it comes down to. And the way I always work with any executive is, as long as we're asking two questions, I'm okay. And here's the two questions. The first one, they naturally ask, what is the value or benefit? So if they're rolling out a new server, they're rolling out a new system, they're putting up a new web interface, whatever it is, what is the value or benefit to the organization? Now, the problem is that's usually where they stop. They say, what is the value or benefit? Oh, good. There's a value or benefit. Let's do it. And that's where things go awry. But the second question is, what is the risk or exposure? What is the risk or exposure by doing this? And then if they understand the value and benefit, they understand the risk and exposure. And they say, Eric, I understand that in your case, you might not like this, but based on the value and benefit and where our business is, we're not doing well. We need to go in and do a Hail Mary pass. Sometimes, right, we're in, in football playoff seasons. Sometimes in a football game, you need to do a Hail Mary pass. So you understand the risk, but you don't have a lot of other choices. So sometimes they have to accept big risk. And to me, as long as they understand that, they go, Eric, I fully recognize this is a big risk, but to me, the value or benefit outweighs the risk. I'm willing to accept the risk in this situation. I'm okay. I'm fine with that because they made an informed decision. And I find a lot of security people and security engineers aren't okay with that. They're going to want to keep fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. 
And the point is, you sometimes have to realize, listen, business is about risk. And as long as they understand and are fully informed with the risk, then you have to be okay that they're making that decision. Give us a little more help on that topic. I, I am I'm in full agreement. And I see people you know, wanting to sort of die on the hill for certain things that are near and dear to their heart uh, when the business makes a different decision and they stick with it and you burn political capital. But there's one more piece I'd like your opinion on. Who then signs off? I see this fail kind of in the field often. Who signs off? Is it the CISO that owns that risk or is it somebody else? So the problem, and, and you nailed in a lot of organizations, is the vice presidents and executives of the different business units have all of the authority and cybersecurity has all of the responsibility. Mm. So I, I've seen these cases over and over again where you go in and a business unit's going to do something. And the CISO says, this is too great a risk. This is outside the risk posture for what I understand the organization is willing to take. And here's what we need to do to reduce that risk. And the other vice president says, nope, I'm in charge. You're not. I'm not spending the money. I'm doing it anyway. Tough boogies. And then they roll out the system. And exactly what the CISO said happens, there's a major breach. And what does the organization do? They fire the CISO. And that's the model in a lot of companies. And it's a broken model. Now, one of the best things that happened that started with the target breach, and it continues today, is when a breach happens, the playbook says fire the CISO. However, board of directors are now getting together going, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't be so fast on the trigger, Mr. or Mrs. CEO. You're firing your CISO, but you should have been more involved at a strategic level. You should have understood these risks. These are unacceptable and you should not have allowed them. And they're also firing the CEO. So now all of a sudden, the CISO is in a unique position. So here's how I do it. We have a risk tolerance level that we've briefed with the CEO, COO, and CFO. And we said, this is acceptable risk to the organization. So when I'm working in my team, is working with all the other business units, as long as they're within that risk tolerance, we'll allow them to do that and say, this is an acceptable risk for the organization. However, if they go over that line and I go in and say, listen, this is not acceptable. This is outside what I've agreed to with the executive team. This is way too risky. I do not think we should do that. And the vice president says, I'm going to do it anyway. I say, okay, great. Just so you're aware, I am transferring that risk to you and I'm going to present it at the next board meeting. So at four times a year, I present for 20 minutes on security. Five minutes is on high-level threats. 10 minutes is on my risk, likelihood of occurrence, cost of occurrence, and cost to fix it. And the last five minutes is on risk transfer. So I say, okay, I just want the board to realize this quarter, there were three risk transfers. The vice president of engineering is rolling out this system that's putting all of our client data uh, directly accessible from the internet. I felt this was too big a risk. They're accepting it. I just want everyone to realize that this risk has been transferred over to that vice president. Then not only does the vice president have to justify, but then the CEO can say, I don't think that's smart. I, I'm, I'm going to, I know we transferred, but I'm going to override and we're not doing this project. That is way too risky. And then I'll tell you what happens. You have the CEO back you a few times and all of a sudden there's no risk transfer anymore because nobody is going to push the envelope. 
they like the old model and they're trained on the old model where I can do wrong and you get punished. And they like that. Now the new model where you can do wrong and you get punished is a lot different. And the key to this is, because a lot of people go, but Eric, when you transfer that risk, what if they don't accept it? They don't have a choice, right? They're taking it and I'm presenting it. They don't really have a choice whether they want to accept it or not. By them taking action and not listening to the CISO, they are implicitly accepting it and I'm presenting it at the next board meeting. And the other thing is, it's going to show up, if it gets bad enough, it's going to show up in e-discovery anyway. Exactly. And that's the piece that I think a lot of security people at many different levels don't understand. And I encourage security teams to, to find these routes to run outside of IT in terms of communication of risk, communicate it in a very clear way, but don't try to hide things. There was days in past where somebody might say, don't log that because it could be bad for business or don't write that down because it, it, it might be bad for us in the future. I think we security people have tried to own too much of the pain and we have in turn had to own even more pain. I think what you just outlined and described is a, a way for maybe not a pain-free existence, but a, um, a shared pain or a more mature uh, outcome for security. And I think that more people need to be coaching and teaching and um, acting on this. I don't think it's done enough. It sounds easy. It's difficult. But it, I think it also starts, as you mentioned earlier, uh, when you interview to say, okay, what's, how much time do I get with the executive? You know, what's our, our risk management process? How do we evaluate risk? Or, you know, what, what are the processes there that we have? What's escalation? What's FaceTime? I think we mess this up often. So to hear that uh, shared, I think, is extremely relevant and certainly valuable. I appreciate that a lot. Kind of switching gears, I mentioned uh, e-discovery. You help people with something known as cybersecurity do care. This is near and dear to my heart. I think it's misunderstood and maybe not even thought of by many. What does cybersecurity do care and, and what's the process there that you help folks with? Now, now one caveat, because a lot of our business is expert witness. So do care is a legal term and I am not a lawyer. So check with your lawyers uh, before confirming it, but <laughs> I've worked it enough. Essentially what do care is, are you doing what a reasonable organization would do to protect your information? Essentially. Are you doing the same thing that every other organization is doing? I'll, I'll give you an example, and, and it's one of the famous ones out there that people misunderstand. It's a scenario that happened 12 years ago where a person drove up to a fast food drive-in in the morning, ordered a cup of coffee, and put it between their legs. They stopped short. The coffee spilled all over their legs. They got permanent third-degree burns, and they sued the fast food establishment, and won. And everyone is like, are you kidding me? How in the world could they have won that? I'll explain to you. What they did, and the lawyers in this case were brilliant, they took that fast food establishment and they drew a 50-mile circle around it. And they went to every other fast food establishment that serves coffee and said, how hot do you keep your coffee? It turns out the hotter you keep coffee, the longer it lasts so you can make more money. It turned out this one fast food establishment kept their coffee 12 degrees hotter than every other establishment. And that 12 degrees was the difference between temporary berms and permanent 
third degree burns for the rest of your life. So in that case, that was actually a correct lawsuit because that establishment did not do what a reasonable establishment should do. They purposely kept their coffee hotter than everyone else. So when you get into a lawsuit or you get into an issue, they're going to come in and they might bring somebody like me because I do expert witness work. And we're going to look at what you're doing with security. And then we're going to look at other organizations similar to yours. So if you're a bank that has $2 billion, we're going to look at other banks that make $2 billion. If you're a retail store that has half a billion dollars, we're going to look at other retail stores that make a half a billion dollars and say, are you doing what these other establishments do? Now, what makes this tricky is it's a moving target, right? It's not something that's written down. However, the way you overcome this and the way we recommend to our clients to overcome this is utilize a standard. So if you're going in, even if you don't process credit cards, one of my favorite standards out there is PCI. To me, it's one of the most prescriptive, straightforward, direct ones you can follow. Nothing against some of these others, but they get so confusing so quick, they're hard to follow. So to me, I tell all of my clients, go in and become compliant with PCI. Well, Eric, we don't process credit cards. I'm like, do care. I said, now, if anything happens where there is a breach or a break-in and anybody sues you, you could say that even though you weren't required to follow PCI, you still did. And that shows that you did a higher level of due care than other similar organization is going to put you in a much stronger position. What, what if I come at you and say, look, hey, I've got this business, Eric, and, and we are, I don't know what we do. We're, we're, uh, we make software. And I was talking to some people and some of the marketing folks and some of the sales folks and some of the IT folks. They just said that if we say that we treat and, and take security very seriously, and if we put that on our sales material, and if we put that on our website, uh, it's going to look really good and it's going to help us make more sales. And I, you know, I know we've had trouble with budgeting and, you know, and our, our security team is relatively new, but if we have these things, uh, it makes us stack up against our competition. If somebody's doing an evaluation, we're going to look better. And uh, that's really the reason why we need to do this. And, you know, we make money for the company. So that's the most important. Like what, what is that? Obviously that sets off red flags. Is there an element of due care there where we're saying we're doing things, but we, but we may or may not? Yeah, yeah that's a big area now. And that's actually one where, and these are all public, so uh, you, you can go and search the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. They, they, they actually enforce and make sure that people are doing what they say they do. And there's been a lot of cases recently over the last couple of years where organizations say things like, we have 100% security, or we've had zero breaches, or we have the best security over anyone in the organization. And the FTC actually came after them and fined them because it's misleading. It's misleading to the public. It's misleading to others. And in many cases, it's downright lies. So yeah, you have to be super careful if you're going to go in and make statements like that. Now, you can say, uh, we take cybersecurity very seriously. Uh, security is a priority. That Those are okay. But when you start making absolute provable statements, like we have never been breached, or we are breach-proof, or we are 100% secure, where it's clear, measurable things, that's where you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. And what are the pieces of advice if you're a CISO? One of your best friends needs to be chief legal counsel. When I was CISO at a few organizations, 
almost every day. You know, when you go to lunch and you're informal and you just you walk by, hey, you want to go to lunch today? That was chief legal counsel. We went to lunch two or three times a week. We had formal meetings twice a week because ultimately at the end of the day, the two most important things to an organization is not being sued, legal, and being secure, cybersecurity. So yes, you want to be super, super careful. And this is also one where knowing your expertise, I'll tell you right now, I've worked on a lot of these cases. So I've given a lot of information on my opinion and experience with due care. But if you actually hired me in your organization and asked me the same question of what you can or cannot put on marketing brochures, I would go to chief legal or I'd bring a lawyer with me to make sure we're covered there. So you always want to know what you're good at, what you're not, and complement with other executives. Excellent point there. Is there a place then if you're a, a CISO, let's say you become a new CISO and you see some uh, outlandish, or maybe not outlandish, that's unfair to say, but some bold, some absolute statements on maybe some marketing material, uh, inside sales information, whatever it might be, you're saying, look, you may want to address that. Step zero is probably going speaking with counsel. How do you approach that? I mean, how do you make sure that that's part of your early discussion that, that you can give good advice, you know, say you're not a lawyer, but not um, sort of flip over the apple cart first day out? First thing I would recommend if, if you're a CISO is trying to put out little fires like that, like running around and looking at this, this, and this. It, it's not going to scale very well. Hmm. What I would recommend is look at the processes that are in place in your organization and see how you can get security injected into that. For example, before any contract is signed at a company, it has a formal approval process. Security should be part of that. Before a brochure gets approved and printed, it goes through an approval process. You should be part of that. Before a new HR policy gets put in place, there is a formal board that it goes through. Security should be involved with that. So what I would do is instead of going after the symptoms where you're pulling up an an HR brochure saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You're pulling up a new sales because that's not going to scale and you're going to just frustrate a lot of people and you're really outside your domain. I would go back to the formality. What are the core processes in place? What are the approval boards? And how do I inject security into those approval boards to make sure that this scales properly in the long term? Because at the end of the day, there's always going to be little things out there don't focus on trying to treat all the symptoms. Go to the root cause and start going after that. And that's how you're going to scale and be an effective CISO. And I think you know, part of it is the advice you, you already gave as well, which might be you know, become friends with counsel, go have lunch. And that, that yeah. might be giving that friendly advice to say, hey, have you ever wondered, do we have a process for that? Or you know, maybe we should review this together sometime, or maybe a representative from our group should work on creating a process. I think that that's would be good. I, I see that out there a lot. And I was, thanks for sharing your perspective on it. Uh, Cause I think we tend to be bold on the internet sometimes and uh, that can, might introduce some risk, big picture. Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that is to me, the really, really good CISOs that are very respected in the organization are problem solvers. Hmm. The CISOs that are not effective and nobody likes are the problem makers. So <laughs> if you, if you're going in and your second day on the job, you're running to marketing and you're pulling up their brochure and you're telling them everything that's wrong with it, you're a problem maker. They're not going to like you and you're not solving anything. On the other hand, if you go in and inject yourself into the process and come up with solutions, you're a problem solver. So 
That's one thing when I'm training CISOs and in the CISO cert is I always say every day, ask yourself, were you a problem solver or were you a problem maker? And you're always going to do a little bit of both. But I, I like to say 90 to 95% should be problem solving and only a little bit should be problem making. <laughs> Eric, I got one more question for you. We ask this of everyone uh, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO. What does being a new CISO mean to you? It means you are a business executive that's entrusted with helping the organization grow and be successful with a focus on cybersecurity and using it as a business enabler. You are a business executive. You are not a technical resource. I completely agree. Thank you so much for your time and uh, all your wisdom that you've shared. This has been Dr. Eric Cole with Secure Anchor. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first. 